Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Our guest today is Maria Tejaria. Maria is co-founder and CTO at Canvas, a construction robotics startup that is working to make life safer and better for skilled trades workers. Canvas is building worker-controlled machines to enable contractors to make drywall finishing safer and more attractive to a shrinking pool of skilled labor. Maria holds her undergraduate degree as well as her PhD from MIT and was recently named to the Inc. 2022 Female Founders 100 list. Huge. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Maria. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the very beginning. You spent your childhood in Mexico. Can you tell us what that was like? Uh, sure, yeah. I was born and raised there um, in kind of a actually northern part of Mexico that is very industrial. So it's a lot of automotive um, factories and things like that. My dad was an engineer. And so, yeah, overall, you know, great childhood. Uh, in, but one of the coolest part is that because of my dad's work, I got to get exposed to automation pretty early on since automotive is one of the most automated fields out there. And so it was really cool to get to see that growing up, get to see how machines and people could work hand by hand, uh, even at an early age. And that really kind of triggered my fascination. So how did that work though? Because I know, I mean, it was your dad's job and some of us, we have no idea what our dads did, <laughs> even though we know the name of their job. So how were you exposed to it? Yeah, I will say my dad's always been one about let's help me fix things around the house. So from very little, that's something that I really enjoy doing with him. We'd fix things. And then so he was actually a on the sales side for a tooling company that sold to the automotives. And so he just kind of, you know, saw that I really believed in it. And so then he would ask his counterparts on the other side, hey, is there a tour or something like that available so that she could see it? And so that was kind of this exposure path. So it was, you know, asking, uh, he always says, I asked a billion questions. And so maybe that led to, to getting that exposure and then just seeing the kind of the fascination that I had for it and, and making machines. Um, so that was like just a great opportunity. And then once this job transferred him to the U.S., that was, you know, first it was hard because I was 14 and you can imagine it was, whoa, was me, you know, moving me across <laughs> to a different country. But the really cool part was that my high school had a robotics team. Well, wait, so, so did you, did you have siblings? Were, are you the only child? I have an older sister. Okay. Is she also into robotics and engineering? Uh, no, she's much more on the business side. So she oh, would okay. be the one selling the robots. I'd be the one making them. <laughs> <laughs> so you said your family moved when you were 14. Was that, you said that was because of your dad's job? Correct. And where did you move to? Uh, we moved to Michigan uh, to a suburb outside of Detroit. So similarly following the automotive trend, yeah. but just completely different place. Yeah. So you, so you find yourself in Detroit, you're 14 years old. It's like, the, oh, it's a time period in your life when most people are trying to figure out who they are identity-wise and who their friends are. And all of a sudden you, you're moving to a different country. What was that like for you? 
at the beginning, I would say I was very upset, right? I think, like you said, it's a time of your life where, you know, changes are big. But the really cool part was being able to kind of see the opportunity, right? It took me a little bit, but as I kind of got into the school, my school in Mexico was pretty small. And the school that I was going to, right, was like 500 kids per grade. That was like 10x what my school had been. And so the exposure to new people um, and then the opportunities, and that was the, where I found about the first robotics mm-hmm. team that my high school had. And it was like, wait, you mean we get to do this with all this, you know, real challenges and it's a game that you do across the country mm-hmm. like that just kind of triggered. So it was partly as a way to cope with the change. I kind of dove into it, but it was also this incredible opportunity that, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, how lucky was I, you know, yeah. I'm not sure I was as aware of it at 14, but yeah. looking back, I just realized like that opportunity and then diving back into that passion and having people support me to say, yeah, you want to do that? Do it. Right. Let's, yeah. Let's it's, it's, so, it's so cool that your high school had that and that you were able to be brave enough to take advantage of it. Was it, was it mostly boys? I don't want to make assumptions or was it like half and half? Um, early on when we first joined, it was more uh, male dominated. But I've always been a little bit of the, let's do it together. So I grabbed a few friends. I think there was four of us that joined the same year. And then the next year, we kind of pulled in more. So towards the end of my four years, I not, I'm not sure we made it to 50-50, but it was much closer to that. And it was a lot of like encouraging people. And I think that's one of the big things. Once you're not the only one, it's a lot mm-hmm. less scary. So I remember you know, grabbing my best friend and be like, you told me you like the physics class too. Let's try this. <laughs> and doing it together made it so much less scary. That's so cool. Are you still in touch with those friends? I am. Yeah. Whenever I go, my parents still live in Michigan. And so whenever I go home, we, we catch up and, uh, and see a, a couple of them are actually now uh, helping mentor that same high school team, the ones who, who still live in Michigan. That's awesome. I was going to ask you if it was still go, if the team was still going. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, it's pretty cool to see it. Although now it's way more advanced. I feel like we were working yeah. with like the old school technology. Now they got all these other things. So we're a little jealous of what they get to play with. I bet. Okay. But you ended up at MIT, which MIT, you know, one of the best schools in the country, in the world. How, what was your path toward that? Did you kind of set your sights on that and work toward it all through high school? I would say definitely not something I thought about much growing up. The opportunity wasn't there, but I was very aware, actually, my grandfather was also an engineer. And so he'd mm-hmm. always talk about these universities as I got into high school and you know, it was in the robotics team. And then you start doing all the PSAT prep and all of this mm-hmm. stuff, just kind of started to see that opportunity. But the really cool part is um, MIT has this program of uh, minority introduction to technology. And it's a summer program between um, it'll be between your junior year and your senior year. And so once I heard about that and with some encouragement, I was like, well, let's try it, right? First of all, I'm a big believer of, you know, it's great to go after a great school, but it's even better to go after the school that's a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me the opportunity to spend six weeks there and, and really kind of get to see the place. And yeah, once once I had that taste, I was like, all right, we got to <laughs> gotta do everything I can to return because I just really, really enjoyed Um, their approach, which is very hands-on, right? Having grown up again, fixing things, I had a hard time not building, right? Just learning about it. And so when I got to there and and got to see so many of the classes were hands-on, I was like, this feels like a really good fit. That's cool. So I didn't realize that, I know a lot of colleges have these summer programs, but I didn't realize that they were almost like a conduit into going to the actual school. You get to learn about it. Does it help? Um, Are you able to 
then use that in your application at, that you've already been to their camp and that helps you? Yeah, some of them, I think it depends on the program, but this one is designed to get exposure. And I think it's, you know, something that's so important is that we have to work on the pipeline, right? And this program was really designed mm -hmm. to like, hey, we need to bring diversity. And one of the ways is to expose people who maybe wouldn't have had this opportunity, right? A lot of people that I knew had had classmates that had attended MIT. So they they knew about this. My high school had, hadn't sent anybody uh, before. And so by using this program, I was able to get that confidence to go there, but they also, you know, helped us prepare for some things. And uh, the program was pretty, um, intensive in terms of academics, but kind of getting through it, I was like, all right, I can do this, you know? <laughs> and so that gave me that confidence to continue to apply. That's great to know. I think a lot of people should be taking that path if, you know, I was trying out these summer programs at the universities that they might be interested in going to. Okay, so you get to MIT. Were you scared? <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> I still remember my mom told me, she's like, I was like crying, especially leaving. I had a and continue to have those really good friends back in Michigan. They were all going to, or a lot of them weren't going to like university together. And I was like crying and so upset again. It's kind of, you know, you go back to all the changes in your life. And my mom always laughs. She's like, by like noon that day, once you had landed and met people, you weren't answering my calls. I knew you were fine. <laughs> so I was scared, but I think a little bit of, you know, that push of you have to do it. And my parents have always been very much like, try it, right? Worst yeah. thing happened, you come back, we'll figure it out, but you have to try it and you have to take advantage of these opportunities. And it was cool and that so many people were coming from all over and, you know, everybody, I would say the majority of them were just as scared, right? Yeah. But you're all trying to pretend uh, that you're not. And then you kind of just realize like you can find people that you could be a little bit more honest and, and, and kind of, again, band up. And so I quickly found a few friends that, you know, kind of had similar interests and we were like, all right, we'll take this challenge on together. So you, you did this for four years, right? Your undergraduate, four years at MIT. And, this, and what was the program's name? Uh, it's in mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And then you went on, what was your PhD? Because you also got your PhD from MIT. What was that in? Correct. Uh, so it's still within the mechanical engineering department, but I actually, the, my thesis work was on the design of cylindrical flexures, which is pretty specific. <laughs> but yes. the idea is how do we create um, systems that are, very simple and like that there's no moving parts you're kind of flexing things to create motion so it was really meant to be for you know high precision apparatuses so phd kind of gives you that opportunity to mm -hmm. super dive into one topic right and yeah. go after it but the really cool part is not just that topic and what you create there is the exposure to how do you conduct research how do you go about something that nobody had done before right how do you take those steps into it and so that was the Kind of the more impactful part, I think, especially as I went into my career about founding a company is like, how do you start from a blank page and start putting some things together? We have a, a lot of women in the Hazard Girls Facebook group who have are either working on their PhDs or have their PhDs. And I'm just, we've heard some stories in the group about how it's so difficult for some people, maybe it depends on the program that they're in or who their advisors are. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience was like getting your PhD? Was it a positive one? Yeah, no, I think 100%. I would say there was a, a highs and lows. Um, I did have a really good advisor, and that would be kind of one of the tidbits of advice that I would give for people pursuing graduate school is pursuing it just to pursue the degree 
mm-hmm. can be really rough. Um, I think that the passion has to be there. And then again, focusing less on the school and more of the advisor. As you get more into graduate school, your life is much more determined by your advisor, your, you know, the professor you work under than it is about the larger program. So I had friends, you know, think they wanted to go to a school, then we, you'd meet the professors and be like, yeah, that's not quite a fit. Then go after that. But then the other part is that there is larger resources and just being mm-hmm. a little bit um, conscious that, you know, there is some hard parts. There is sometimes when you are on your own, um, sometimes where the theory that, you know, you were basing all of you to research on is not panning out, right? And that's why it's hard and you, all this work and all of a sudden you see an insurmountable mountain. One thing that I recommend for those people, especially struggling with it because it can be long is always keep an eye out on, on you know, things outside of academia, right? That can be a motivation. So connecting with people inside and outside academia, looking for mentors without it, within academia that can help you through it. So I had a professor that, you know, through the, there was a graduate women in mechanical engineering and got my advisor was uh, a man, but I got connected to a woman and it was great because I could tell her those things that maybe I didn't feel comfortable mm. telling him. And one of her advice was, you know, at least at MIT and I think most places you have your professor, but you also have a committee within your thesis. And she was like, leverage that committee. Part of why we put four people in charge of your future mm. is to kind of use that. And so she was very instrumental in helping me like use that committee, make sure that that committee also keeps your advisor moving and honest and supporting you. And then if that's, that's that committee's job, right? That nobody has kind of full control. So I think mm-hmm. some of those pieces of advice allowed me to get through some of the harder parts, but yeah, definitely having mentors and people that you can go run to and ask for help when they need to. Yeah. Okay. So now is your, what you did your PhD on, you explained a little bit about it is is that related to your current company, Canvas? Not directly, no. Okay. <laughs> I will tell, what do you tell us about your path toward deciding to start your startup, to found your startup? Yeah, so during my uh, time at MIT, during my PhD, I did work um, part of our my funding, because part of the research is you got to get funded, right, to do this. But part of my funding was working on a government program that was trying to do small robotics and kind of really changed the equation instead of these expensive robots that the, you know, the government had, could you have almost disposable robots? The cool part of that is that it started to get me to think about robotics doesn't have to be what I had seen in automotive, right? Where it's like this fixed large thing that does the same thing. It started to push me into like robotics can be something else. But the other really cool part is we were working with Boston Dynamics on this project. And that's where I met my co-founder, Kevin Albert. He was at Boston Dynamics. And so we kind of got paired up to this project. You know, we worked on the project. It was interesting. You know, government projects are always funny, (laughs) but it was interesting. We learned a lot. But when I graduated and I decided I wanted to move out to California, started to reach out to my network and reached out to Kevin. And he was like, hey, you know how we always talked about that? Why are robots only used a certain way? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, kind of like I hadn't thought about it too much more. He was like, well, I just got some funding and I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a research lab pushing robotics outside of the factory, outside of the manufacturing line. What do you think? And I was like, wow, this is perfect, right? Like the timing was just perfect. And so kind of flew out and and first joined him in the research lab. And as we discovered what we really wanted to focus on, which ended up being construction, 
And then we spun out and fun, funded the company out of that research lab. Oh, okay. So he he received funding. Uh, was it funding to create a startup? He was uh, more of a, so the government has this like small business grants. Mm-hmm. So it was a grant from the government um, developing. So we were working with NASA and some other uh, of the agencies at the time. And so the mm-hmm. funding was to develop the project. But one really cool thing about how those funding is set up is the ultimate goal is really to do a startup, but you're kind of within this project, you're building your business case, you're mm-hmm. building your technology. So we had a very specific goals for the project in terms of demonstration for NASA, but they also kind of were hoping that that evolves into a company that will go out there and put new technology. And how did it, how did it end up getting honed into the construction industry and to specifically what you're doing with drywall? Yeah, so we, through NASA and through some of the other ones, the idea again was like, what if robots don't have the luxury of being in a manufacturing line, right? Like (laughs) one of the cool things and why it works so well in manufacturing is you control everything around it. You kind of put the robot and you build everything and you optimize the workflow around it. That works great for those industries. But, you know, when NASA's like, hey, we're going to Mars, like obviously we can't control everything around it. Or, you know, we were working uh, with the Office of Naval Research underwater in the sea. You can't control anything around it. So now your paradigm changed. And we said the robot has to be designed completely differently. Hmm. And so we were designing the system, really thinking about how to make it adaptable. And as we started thinking about a company, we thought construction has that same problem, right? Like, how can you control everything around it if one, you're building it as you go, right? I can't construct everything around it and then hope the the robot works. What I really need is a robot that builds that building. Mm -hmm. It has to be mobile. It has to be adaptable, right? Because every building is different. You can't just say, I'm only going to build this specific type of building. So when we started seeing all those parallels in the problem in construction, we said, hey, this is a place that, this is an industry where a lot of the research that we've been doing needs it. And so we were kind of focused in and we said, let's go tackle construction. And, but then we also said, construction's huge. Let's yeah. tackle one thing yeah. <laughs> within construction, right? The Swiss army knife doesn't always work very well in robotics. So we said, let's make <laughs> a really, really good one tool. And that was where we ended up with uh, drywall finishing. We saw it as an incredibly labor intensive job. People had to retire early because, you know, you're basically building these buildings off their backs of workers, mm-hmm. exposing them to dust. Um, they were having a huge labor shortage, as you mentioned. And we just knew that if we could make a tool for them, we could start solving that problem and, and a trade that in particular needed it. Okay. So you, you decide to hone in on drywall. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, what percentage you might, this might not be a stat that's out there, but what percentage of building is drywall? I mean, it seems like a pretty large portion of what you're, what you're doing in construction. Yeah, it depends how you slice it, but like maybe by cost is maybe only like 5% of a building. But, you know, when you have a trillion dollar industry, Mm -hmm. 5% is a big problem, right? And one of the parts of drywall that's interesting is one of those things that as a user, you interact with the most, right? You see even drywall behind me. And so (laughs) it's it's one of those things that even though it's a small- I just got that. I just got that. Sorry. (laughs) I saw saw the white background behind you. It's drywall. Okay. You know, we keep it, we keep it focused here in Canvas. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of that piece, right? It's a very visual part of the building. It's a part that at the end of the day makes you be, you know, happy about how it looks. Yeah. And so it's, although it's a smaller component of it, I think, especially for the user perspective, it's a, it's a large part of what you see. You don't see what's behind it. You see what's presented to you. So who are the workers in drywall? 
Yeah, so the they call usually the tapers. Uh, there's a drywall finishing finishers tapers, um, skull taping because you apply tape between the drywall pieces. Um, but yeah, these are you know skilled uh, craftspeople who have learned to basically make it. What this would be right is a chunk, a uh, bunch of drywall pieces stuck together. But you don't want to look at looking like that, like a checkerboard. What you want it to look is like one continuous piece. So. They're yeah. uh, trained on how do you make, how do you apply the, what is called the joint compound or mud between those pieces of drywall. So at the end of the day, when you look at it, it's painted, you think, hey, this is one continuous wall when in reality it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, a lot of what we're talking about is the robot is robotics. And, but we're talk, also talking about something that skilled workers are needed for. So we, we need people to do this work but you're building robotics. And I know that some people, when they hear that, they might think, well, hmm, they're making robots to take away jobs from people. <laughs> well, I, I know that's not the case. So can you talk a little bit about why that's so wrong and, and why people should not? Yeah, uh, I think there's so many ways uh, to explain that. But one of the things that we often think about is augmentation over automation. Okay. And there's two reasons. One, at the end of the day, we're very driven by making the life of these workers better. But the other, from a technical reason, this work is incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly hard because it is a visual job, right? At the end of the day, the final judge is your eyes. Mm -hmm. There's not a spec that tells you if it's within 0.1 millimeters, this is acceptable. It has to look good. And so for us, focusing on augmentation allows us to use that skilled and expertise of the scraps people and apply it to robots. So it's the fastest path for us to get the technology there is to partner or to build a tool for the robots. Mm -hmm. Why don't you see robotics out there in construction that much? Because it's too hard of a challenge to tackle it on its own. But if you start changing the paradigm, it's like, what if I build you a tool? A tool that just allowed you to use your skill and not the, you know, break your shoulder, right? A lot of them have shoulder injuries from all day long up and down. What if I allowed you to use your expertise, your eye, your trade skills, but I took the brunt of the work? One, the technology will get there faster. That's what allows us, you know, now we are in construction sites and we've been doing drywall jobs for a couple of years now. It allowed us to get there faster, but it also created this partnership in that we can leverage what people are really good for, which they are adaptive. They can recognize things, right? The amount of sensing and adapting that a person does is incredible. But what they're not good at is, you know, repeatable, re repeating the same motion over and over and over, carrying large loads. And so if you pair them together, you kind of have this win-win where the person can be that adaptable, resourceful, you know, skill, uh, have all of that trade knowledge, and the robot can be kind of their tool to say, hey, I'm going to repeat 800 times what you just told me to do, because that's okay, what so I do. <laughs> let's, back, let's back up just for a yeah. moment then and explain what the equipment is exactly. What is it exactly doing? Sure, yeah, the canvas system is a robotic arm on a mobile base. Um, okay. And at the end of it, we apply uh, two different tools. One is sprayer to apply the joint compound that I mentioned, and one is sanding head to sand it back, back flat. That's one of, actually one of the hardest parts for the trade worker is the sanding part, right? It's a lot of dust, it's a lot of um, pain on your, on your joints. So the tool really becomes, you know, we match a worker with their robot, they come in, they inspect the job site, they set it up, they give it all of the information that the robot needs to start. You know, the robot also uses its sensors to collect more information, but at the end of the day, we need that worker to say, 
this is the quality that I want you to apply. This is the order of events that I want you to follow. They set it up and now they're in a supervisory capacity, right? Mm -hmm. They're watching this tool do that brunt of the work and they're adapting. They have things to control. If they want to add more material here or less, if they want to skip an area, you know, maybe the electricians haven't finished that wall. So you don't actually want to do this. You can move on and go to this. So it really gives them that kind of like super advanced tool. Just like, you know, we got computers, right? We could be typing all of this up, but instead <laughs> we get a computer that allows me to do more work every day because I have this incredible processing power. It's the same idea. Give something like that to the workers so that they can use their skill and now they can complete more work with less um, injury to their bodies. Well, we know there's a labor shortage um, and we know women are one of the great untapped resources are filling these jobs. And I mean, that's that's part of our whole mission here at the Hazard Girls podcast, which is to spread the word about, about these industries. How does what you're doing with Canvas fit into that? Yeah, I think it's a huge part, right? I think a lot of the reason it's been difficult for women and, and other minorities um, to join has been, you know, if your work was predetermined by the physicality of it, yeah. you're already kind of, it's hard to compete, right? At the end of the day. And of course, that also led to some other problems where if all of your work is evaluated off of what your supervisor thinks, you can get into these bad situations where it's really hard to break in as a woman, right? Not to say there isn't amazing women, actually, our superintendent, Teresa, has done this for 30 years. A lot of respect to her because she did fight those fights, right? But what the robot allows it to do you remove that physicality of it, the brunt of the work, and you focus on the skills, now you see that that levels it, right? Levels the playing field a bit, right? It's not about whether you can lift 50 pounds all day long. It's about, do you know how to apply material? Do you know how to judge the quality of a wall? And these women who have you know, been trained in this can do that and can run it. And also, you know, there's constraints, right? They don't wanna be, you know, people might have families at the end of the day. And so being able to get home where their bodies are not exhausted, not having to retire early, just creates a path that's also much more enticing and better for women because they can say, hey, I can protect my body, I can do this work, and I'll be evaluated by the final result. The robot reports the work that was done. There's no, I like you or I don't like you. There's, at the end of the day, I did this many square feet. You know, that puts yeah. it a little bit, allows us to also get over some of the, maybe the biases that exist that's in the industry. That's incredible. So we have this we have this skilled worker shortage in the U.S. We we need ways to fill it. One of the ways to fill it is through getting more women and other minorities into these industries. But they face so many challenges. Well, here's a huge solution: <laughs> apply more robotics, apply AI, apply tech, make the job itself a different type of job and take away some of the human error with all the bias that goes on and you're solving a gigantic problem. Yeah, and that's a lot of what our focus is, right? Remembering how do we make that tool for them? You know, I remember we we had um, we this, this what we call the mud cart, right? It's just something that you have to transport the material around. It's a heavy 30 gallon drum. And one thing we did with our diverse team, we said, okay, the shortest woman, <laughs> And the tallest guy have to be able to use this. Yeah. Right? And so then you really designed it. And it was the same thing with the robot, right? We we look at how do I make the user interface so it's intuitive for everybody. 
and allows you to bring that up and then always continuing to ask them. And, and we brought on people who are tapers by skill like Teresa and some of her team and just continue to have them sit next to engineers and be like, you know, the part I really hate is blank mm-hmm. or the part that slows me down is this. And mm-hmm. so we've been able to hear about these things. And that is something we've heard about the women in the industry. It's like, it can be the old boys club. And so how can we help them highlight that? So we create reports for their supervisors, mm-hmm. right? They say, no, actually they're doing great. They're producing just as much, if not more. And so you remove that bias and you say, look, data is data. And here is what, yeah. what was done. Data is data is our friend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and lo and behold, we are actually taking different types of bodies into consideration when doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's what happens when there's diversity on the on the founding team, right? And on the, on the 100%. Team, in the C-suite. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's talk about safety for a second because you did talk, you did mention how this, how your product and your company is making things safer for workers. Can you specifically, because safety, obviously at, with our company, um, it's Juno Jones and Hazard Girls safety is a huge issue for us. It's, if not like the biggest issue. How is your company making things safer? Yeah, the biggest one I would say is really trying to remove that uh, repetitive motion injuries from mm-hmm. our workers, right? A okay. lot of them retire. You talk to people um, like Teresa or other people, and they've had one or two shoulder surgeries in their mm. careers, right? Because if you do this all day long with so many pounds, you're going to wear out your joints, right? Our bodies, again, we're in design for that motion. Um, but And so by having the robot hold the tool, right, the sprayer, the sanding head, and you control it, the robot's the one going like this all day long, right? Yeah. And the person is just adjusting and, and tackling the, the hard to reach places, really using their skill there. Um, additionally, um, dust exposure is one of the hazards that you see a lot of in construction because the robot is able to carry a larger tool. We have a very powerful vacuum attached to our sanding head that captures all of the dust. That's hard for a person to do because if you're already doing this and you, mm-hmm. you're like, you tell me like, here, it's something that could protect you, but it weighs 30% more. You're going to be like, well, that's going to be a hard day, right? And yeah. unfortunately, we've put people in these situations where they have to pick one or the other, productivity or safety. And we need to create tools that don't require that terrible choice. And so by the robot having the vacuum. And the last one is uh, most of the injuries in construction as a whole actually are falls from heights. Mm-hmm. right? People having to work at higher heights, you have to get on a scaffold, you start seeing people cutting corners, because again, it's like, go fast, go fast, oh, but also do it safely, right? And so by the mm-hmm. robot has a 16 foot reach, it means a person can stay safely on the ground, do that work high above, but the robot's the one up above, they can stay down in the ground. And so reduce their injury risk and also productivity, right? There's a lot of wasted time going up and down ladders, instead, they can just stay on the ground. Yeah. Well, kudos to you. This is groundbreaking stuff. I love it. I love learning about it. Um, how can how can what you're doing with in construction with robots in construction how can that serve as a model for other industries? I think in general, one of the things we preach, maybe almost or talk a lot about, is this idea of let's focus on augmentation. Let's focus on tools. You hear so much about. AI and you know full autonomy and all of these things. And there may be places where that's correct, but I think we see so many more wins if we focus on a better tool mm-hmm. that augments the worker and keeping that worker in the loop. Because at yeah. the end of the day, 
right? We're trying to make things better for everybody. That means you should also consider the people who are currently doing the job, mm-hmm. right? And so that's been a huge focus for us is like, how do we make sure that the current skilled workers benefit from this tool and do this together? And that was part of that we just said from the beginning, shouldn't be an engineer running this robot. We don't know anything about drywall <laughs> finishing and making it look nice. Um, but what if we took those people who, that skill actually takes much longer to develop and then we take it as a responsibility to make a robotic system that is fairly easy to use, that is really a tool in their tool belt. Now you really get into that win-win situation, right? Where you can leverage all their skills of their years of work, but you make it, you know, give them a tool to produce more in a safer way. And so I think that's something I would love for a lot of industries, a lot of engineers who may be listening here is like, don't get too like shiny lights over auto, you know, autonomous cars and all of these things. There's there's a place for that, but there's so much we can gain by leveraging the things that people are really good at and really instead of being like, okay, autonomy, maybe later, but for now, augment that worker and you're going to see the benefits much faster and you're going to see industries really start caring more about their workers. And what are some examples, would you say, of industries that this is needed in? No, the construction still has a lot. I think that's one of our goals is to, you know, go to other trades. So I think there's mm-hmm. okay. uh, plenty of grass uh, to explore within construction. Um, but, you know, we looked at some other things like um, even maintenance and repair. Uh, you hear about people going into these tanks that, you know, held incredibly dangerous chemicals mm-hmm. and they have to clean them out. And you're just like, why is a person doing like this is just the worst idea. It's explosive. Yeah. But there's no other solution. And what does that mean? We push people into that. Um, we also, again, working with um, Office of Naval Research divers that go inspect like the oil rigs. And we all know how important that is because when there is failures, it's catastrophic. But again, you're putting this person in these currents that are trashing them about to look at these metal pieces. And you start realizing like, again, why are we putting people in all those dangerous situations, yeah. right? And so versus like, what if that person who still can use their skills had a robot that allowed them to inspect this. They're, hey, if the robot crashes, it crashes. We'll survive, right? Yeah. But the person safely above, they can uh, maybe even monitor two or three robots. So they get a lot of done and they're not having to be exposed. So I really try to think of all those, you know, in robotics, we call the dull, dirty, dangerous jobs are the ones that we really need to spend more time focused on. And I think so far, uh, roboticists have focused on some of the more low-hanging fruit, I think we need to start challenging ourselves. And the way to do that is to say, okay, let's not think about removing the person completely because mm-hmm. that's way too difficult and it's not the right way to support our workforce. Let's just think about how do I get that person at a risk and let the robot do that, be a tool for them to do their jobs. And speaking of supporting our workforce, what? so when we're training workers, the way that we do it now is generally through... Um, technical schools, and then they, they go to work. Um, there are some apprenticeship programs. What would you say is the way to really start training workers to prepare them for the future with robotics as part of the industries? Yeah, um, I'm a firm believer that we should have more apprenticeships, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much that can be learned through that. Um, unfortunately, I think we've gotten to a point where People even started looking down into those trades, into the, you know, some of the labor shortage just comes from people not necessarily wanting to go into those apprenticeships. And so I think if we start making those programs more enticing, and this is something that we're working at Canvas is to say, 
let's teach them the tool. Let's bring them the robot during that apprenticeship. Hey, and you know what? That also makes you more flexible because if you know how to use a robot in this industry, that's knowledge that applies to other industries. So it also makes you more adaptable if things were to change within that industry, right? Or if, you know, for whatever reason. And so by inserting that into an apprenticeship, I think making the apprenticeships go beyond the traditional methods, showing them the latest technology. I think you can get people pulling in. You can get women to apply more because, again, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, this seems like it's going to be a more level playing field I'm more interested in. You start having that, and then the people come out, and they're prepared for the latest technology, right? Uh, but I do hope that we can encourage apprenticeships to kind of regain a part of it because at the end of the day, this is work that requires a hand needs, you know, the material has to be applied to the wall. So we do need that ability to learn in the field, to learn all of those tricks and tips and stuff like that, that, you know, just have to do it through experience. And so are you saying that it, it should not be taught in schools or should it be a kind of a combination of both? I think it should be a combination of both. Yeah, I think uh, that this is kind of where everybody is needed to the robotics, right? Obviously, we still need also people who focus on making the robotic systems, I think it should just be less of the separate, like there's some people that know robotics and some mm-hmm. people that know the trades, right? Mm-hmm. And you should be kind of bringing them together. Like how great would it be if like, I mean, for me, if I had been exposed much more to the to the challenges of the trades, right? During my uh, all of my education, just been like, hey, this is the real life problems that are happening. This is why people are getting exposed to this. How do you solve it, right? And similarly for them, get them introduction. We spend a lot of time during our training to be like, let me explain to you how this system works. I'm not saying you're going to sit there and and code and change the thing, (laughs) but when a problem does arise, you're much more prepared to be like, hey, this is likely due to this sensor because I learned that that sensor is what, you know, locates the robot to the wall. So as they call us for site support, they can be like, hey, I'm seeing this problem. You know, I checked that the sensor is clean, right? Something as simple as that. I checked that there's nothing on there. That already helps us. So I do think we just kind of need to, one, bring more real world experience to, to schools and then bring more technology to the apprenticeship. And then we can have a much more fluid model, maybe even classes that meet together, right? How cool would that be if we had a class where, you know, three people from the union and three engineers joined together and they said, yeah. let's solve one of your problems, right? And and work together to a solution. I think that'd be an awesome class. That would be an awesome class. I'd love that. So what would be your message then to women who are interested in the trades or robotics and tech, but they, they're just not sure how to get involved? Yeah, a couple of things. One is don't be afraid, right? Take that first step. Try something, right? We were talking, there's associations of women in construction. Join there, right? You'll start getting connected to people. Reach out to people that you've seen, right? Um, I think that I was particularly always very conscious of like, oh, would this person want to hear from me? Now being on the other end, I'm always like, oh, this is so cool. This person reached out to me. And, you know, whether I can help directly or point them to somebody else, I think not being afraid to reach out to somebody who's doing that. Yeah. Well, you're kind of like, hey, that looks pretty cool. Uh, And taking that first step and also like tinkering at home, right? Especially nowadays, I think there's so much um, classes, online classes or things like that, that maybe give you that little bit of exposure, that little bit of confidence of just going out there and saying, I'm going to try it. It might not be the exact path that you end up and you come back and you uh, do something else, but it gives you that kind of confidence and that when I go, you know, interview with Emily, I can be like, hey, well, I took this class and what was exciting for me was this, this and that. You already show that 
desire that you've gone beyond. Yeah. It's kind of like, I think I want to do this to, no, I know I want to do this. And I did these things, right? Um, I contacted somebody to get a tour of the construction site because I thought it'd be really cool to, you know, see how these things uh, are built and be a project manager. Now I understand how it works. Okay, well, listeners, don't all reach out to Maria at once. <laughs> but but what would be your the best place for people to get in touch with you if they did want to be pointed in the right direction or just just connect? Yeah, um, I mean, LinkedIn is always a good place um, as well. And then I always tell people like my email address is just maria at canvas.build, uh, which is our thing. So people can always reach out there and, and look. And like you said, I think definitely myself, but look look even closer, right? You'd be surprised sometimes yes. that if you just look to your second connections and you're like, oh, my mom's friend does blah, 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 or go to one of these national meetings and mm -hmm. things like that and connect to people. But you know, worst cases, they say no, or they don't respond. You didn't lose anything. And so you try the next person. And That's I think true. you'd be surprised how many people do, do want to support and do want to do what they can to, to encourage the next generation, right? We all kind of want to make it a little bit easier for the people coming behind it and nothing more exciting when you see like you go to a class or you know we were we went to the union saw their um incoming apprenticeship class and saw so many more women yes. and you just walk away like yeah we got we get this. so excited <laughs> we get so excited about these things <laughs> exactly well maria tajadia co-founder and cto at canvas thank you so much for joining us on the hazard girls podcast today it's amazing to just learn about all of these advances in construction and robotics. And of course, we love seeing women taking the lead on these companies and in this change. So thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you for having me. And yeah, looking forward to hearing more about what other people are doing. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.